0: I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This
1: is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain.
0: I started listening to true crime podcasts when Serial came out with their first season. In fact, that might actually be the very first podcast I ever listened to. I was hooked. As you guys know, both Alicia and I were raised on shows like Unsolved Mysteries and Dateline. And as I grew up, my interest never faded. In college, I received a degree in biological anthropology. My intention was to get additional degrees and become a forensic anthropologist. Life had different plans for me. And while I currently work in tech by day, we all know where my true passion lies. I was pleased to find in my adulthood that there was an entire community of true crime podcast people. I quickly binged through the catalogs of True Crime Garage, Crime Junkie, and Generation Y. And then I realized something. I wanted to do that. And I wanted to do that with cases that are local. Fast forward to Alicia and I deciding we were going to make it happen and Josh getting on board to make our dreams come true. And then we were in our very first meeting, a meeting of the minds. And we had a very short to-do list. Discuss a show format, choose our very first case, and pick a podcast name. So that's where today's case comes in. This case inspired one of the losing names of that brainstorm session, I-5 True Crime. Yeah, I don't claim to be the creative one in the crew, but for me, I envisioned cover art with a map of the Northwest with pins indicating each location of the crimes we talked about. I eventually added a page to our website where I could get my fix by marking the location of all of the crimes we discussed so you guys could see where everything took place. It wasn't until today that I've even shared this information with anyone that this case inspired my vision for the show. But today, we're finally going to talk about it. From late 1980 to early 1981, just within a few short months, an increase of crimes took place across three states, Washington, Oregon, and California. There was no obvious connection between the crimes because they ranged drastically in severity. Law enforcement eventually started to string these crimes together due to the most unlikely pieces of evidence. What was seemingly multiple culprits committing burglary, rape, and murder all over the Northwest turned out to be just one man. And while the locations were spread across three states, multiple jurisdictions, and counties, they did have one thing in common. They were all within the vicinity of Interstate 5, or as we on the West Coast call it, the I-5. And while it often pained them to do so, law enforcement agencies started to work together to share information, and with the help of numerous witnesses, they put together at least 20 sketches of the face of a man dubbed the I-5 Bandit. Just as his crimes escalated, the I-5 Bandit was later renamed to the more serious moniker, the I-5 Killer. And what people found most shocking is that he was not unlike Ted Bundy, the Northwest sweetheart serial killer. The man unmasked as the I-5 killer was handsome, gentlemanly, and could have had all of the opportunities that his privilege had to offer. He wasn't going to blend into the mundane suburban life like other killers. This was a guy who yearned for the spotlight. He wanted to be loved. He wanted to be a star because he had already had a taste of it. (laughs) Cherie Lynn Ayers spent her early years in Newport, Oregon, a small and highly visited spot on the Oregon coast. After she graduated from Newport High School, she went to Oregon State University before getting her degree at the University of Oregon Medical School in Portland. Her parents, Raymond and Inez, relocated to Lebanon, Oregon when their daughter moved to Portland to work in the medical field. She went to school to be a radiology technician and ended up getting jobs at both the Metropolitan Clinic in Portland and the Dwyer Memorial Hospital in Milwaukee. On October 9, 1980, Cherie's fiancé came into her home in southwest Portland to find the 29-year-old lying dead on the floor of her bedroom. She had been beaten, stabbed in her head and neck, and sexually assaulted. What happened to Cherie was a bit of a mystery. They quickly ruled out those close to her, and the only witness who saw anything referenced an unfamiliar car in the area, a gold Volkswagen Beetle. Any persons of interest were totally circumstantial due to the lack of evidence, so the case remained open. Investigators took swabs at the scene, but as our listeners know, in the early 80s, there wasn't really much you could do with blood or semen. The most investigators could do were take swabs, knowing the scientific advancement would take place someday. They could do blood testing to identify the blood type, and they could check the semen to find out if the owner was what we call a secretor, meaning that they have blood type antigens in the semen. Roughly 80% of the population are secretors. The sample was indeed from a secretor, and they were able to determine that the blood factor for that individual was O, and that's it. The suspects were interviewed and samples taken, but no one was a
1: match. So this was pre-DNA, and this was how... I just I n- I've i never heard of this before, so I'm learning. all. You've never this, right? heard I've of never, blood there's... typing or blood? No, I've never heard of like a secretor, meaning that like so the blood type. So this is pre DNA. They were able to at least narrow it down to a blood type. Yes. So what you could get from
0: something like semen at that time were any known STDs. You would be able to determine those if, okay. if they knew what they were. Their, and their blood type. So that was How something they were looking no for. Idea. But like I said, it really would only be helpful if they weren't a secretor like other famous cases we've heard about. Right. Um, with this, it's so much of the population that that really doesn't narrow it
1: down at all. Interesting.
0: A little over a month later, on Thanksgiving Day, a young couple was found dead, shot execution style in a North Portland apartment. Darcy Renee Fix was 22 years old and was on her way to be a true talent in the banking world. Her fiancé, Douglas Keith Altig, was quite literally the boy next door. They were not only childhood sweethearts, but he was her neighbor growing up. They were popular and well-loved by those that knew them, even receiving crowning superlatives in the high school yearbook. As adults, they found each other again. In fact, they had only been together a few weeks before they were murdered. Isn't that sad?
1: That's so sad. I know. It's like such a sweet story. It is, and they're so cute,
0: their picture and their obituary. Police were perplexed by this one because there was no forced entry, yet the way Darcy was dressed in a bathrobe indicated that they were not expecting a guest that night. As you know, the lack of forced entry typically indicates that the victims knew the perpetrator, but not necessarily, as it was the 80s and maybe the door wasn't locked. But what I will say is this murder took place in a year where Portland saw some of the highest homicide rates in history. So I think it's probably true that they did lock the door and actually knew who the perpetrator was. Initially, police looked at the people close to the victims, including Darcy's ex-boyfriend, but he had a solid alibi. When he was being questioned by police, he inquired if Darcy had used her gun against the intruder. She owned a 32 caliber chrome revolver, an old and unique gun that wasn't registered and was given to her by her father because she lived alone and he wanted to make sure she was protected. When police went back to the crime scene to look for the gun they discovered that it was the only item missing. Just like the Ayers case, they had nothing tangible connecting anyone to this horrible crime. Not even a sighting of a car. No one in the neighborhood even heard gunshots. Murder wasn't the only crime taking place up and down the Northwest states. On December 9th, 1980, a 22-year-old female cashier was robbed at gunpoint at a Vancouver, Washington Arco gas station. She wasn't hurt, but explained to police that a man walked up, came straight to her at the register, pulled out a small silver gun, and demanded cash. She noted that he was tall, with dark hair, and he was wearing what appeared to be a fake beard. A fake beard that was so bad, it was nearly falling off his face, it was almost comical. He told the girl to turn around and keep her eyes averted while he left the scene. With the help of the cashier, the very first sketch of the man, soon to be widely known as the I-5 Bandit, was created. Four days later, on December 13th, a Baskin-Robbins in Eugene, Oregon was robbed. A single worker was in the store that evening when a man with a beard walked in. He looked peculiar as he had a Band-Aid across the bridge of his nose. Like the Arco station, the man held a silver gun and told the girl to give him the money in the register. Once he received the money, he told the girl to walk to the back of the building. She later told police that she thought she was for sure going to be shot, but luckily, the man just left. The very next day, December 14th, two teenagers were working at the Arctic Circle in Albany, Oregon. You remember those? Arctic Circle?
1: Yeah. Are they gone?
0: There's one, I think, in Newport.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I've seen one recently.
0: Oh, Lincoln City, maybe. Yeah. Side don't. Sorry. Really good place. I love that as a kid. That night, a man walked up to the drive-in window. In his hands were an old Arctic Circle bag and a cup. The man asked the girl working at the window to fill up his cup with water, throw the bag away, and get him a new one. While she thought it was odd, she gave him what he asked for, and as they exchanged a few words, he then demanded for her to fill up the bag. At first, she wasn't even sure what that meant and kind of laughed it off, but then she realized she was being robbed. So she filled the bag and he ran away from the scene. A month later, on January 14th, a man matching the description of the I-5 bandit wearing a false beard invaded a Corvallis home occupied by two sisters who were home alone. The girls were very young, age 8 and 10, and were only alone for 45 minutes while their mom was at the gym. Their mother was gone about 10 minutes when the doorbell rang. The older girl answered it to find a tall man wearing a brown suede jacket and jeans. He told the girls that his car broke down and asked if he could use their phone. They allowed him to use the phone, but it was clear he wasn't really punching in a number— Instead, he asked them questions like, are you home alone? When's your mom coming back? And then he asked if he could watch television with them till their parents got home. The girls said no, but he kept insisting until finally he pulled out a gun and forced them into the bathroom. He then insisted that they take off their clothes and perform oral sex on him. He told the girls to get dressed when he was done and stay in the bathroom until he was gone. Minutes later, their mom came home, and they had to tell everything that happened. And as you can imagine, she was frantic, on the phone with police, but there was no trace of him.
1: And how old were these girls?
0: Eight and ten.
1: Oh, Jesus.
0: On the evening of January eighteenth, 1981, friends Sherry Hull and Lisa Garcia, both 20 years old, had a cleaning job at the Transamerica Title Company, just off the I-5 in Kaiser. The two women were best friends, and Sherry had welcomed Lisa into her home after moving to the area from Spokane, Washington. She helped her get a job with her at her father's cleaning company, and they started working together regularly. The job at the title company was their final assignment for the evening, and as the women wrapped up their job and prepared to leave, Lisa realized they had missed wiping down some of the windows in the building. Sherry volunteered to take the trash to the dumpster while Lisa did the windows so that way they could get out faster. The trash was typically something they did together as they were leaving so that they didn't have to do it alone in the dark, but they wanted to go fast so they thought, let's just split the work. Moments later, Sherry appeared back in the building and she was accompanied by a male stranger. He forced the women to undress, touch each other, and then he ultimately raped both of them. As Lisa lies on the floor cowering from this man, she hears multiple gunshots, looks up to find this man pointing the gun at her friend. He then turns the gun on her and pulls the trigger twice. He flees the scene. So she's laying there in her own blood, totally scared, waits till she can hear no sound from him and decides to get up gets her way over to the phone and calls police. Now it's like 10 minutes she's on the phone with the operator. The entire time the operator's talking to her, she's telling what this perpetrator looks like. Um, she doesn't, I don't think, realize she's been shot, but she's actually been shot twice in the head and was able to stay on the phone, to help her friend, tell the police what happened, They're both rushed to the hospital. Eventually, Sherry dies because she took three bullets into her head. Lisa was lucky the bullets didn't actually go through her skull. They kind of went off the side, so it was mainly just flesh damage. But she did learn that she contracted herpes from the incident. Lisa Garcia became an integral part of the case, working with police as often as she could. She detailed to them that the man that attacked her was tall, dark, in his late 20s, with short brown hair and a mustache. He was wearing a dark jacket and jeans, and importantly, had tape across his nose. She was the only witness to this murder, the only one who knew what the killer looked like, a killer known as the I-5 Bandit who had been committing crimes all over the state. On February 3rd, 1981, a woman and a teenager working at a fast food restaurant in Redding, California, were attacked by a man described as tall and dark, wearing a windbreaker, jeans, and a wool cap. He forced the women into a bathroom at gunpoint and then demanded that the woman sit on the toilet. He then taped her hands behind her back, her feet together, and her mouth shut. He turned to the teenager and told her to undress. Before he touched her, he made the woman look away, but she could hear everything. She heard her young employee crying for help as he demanded that she perform oral sex on him. He then forced her on the floor and tried to rape her, but he could not achieve an erection, so he then forced her to complete oral sex on him. The woman's husband arrives at the restaurant to find this confusing scene. He is then forced by gunpoint into the bathroom while the stranger robs the contents of the register and takes off.
1: It's so brazen how he keeps doing some of these are in the day. So many people involved.
0: Yeah, this is the first one where there's like a male yeah. walking in on the scene, which w- I think probably startled him mm-hmm. why he took off. But yeah, he, I mean, he's very brazen. Some of these are, well, I'll get to it, but they're middle of the day, one after another. Right. Merely an hour later and only a few miles away, 14 year old Janelle Jarvis and her mother, Donna Eckard, went to a local store called Jake's Market to purchase food for breakfast. It was going to be a quick trip, so Donna just wore a house coat over her nightgown and gave her daughter Janelle the money to run into the store. After purchasing bread, milk, and cereal, the daughter got into her mom's car and they left, and they were never seen alive again. Instead, they were found at 9 p.m. that night by Janelle's sister. They were lying next to each other, lifeless, in their bed in their Mountain Gate, California home. They were both shot in the head multiple times with a 32 caliber handgun, and there was evidence that young Janelle had been sodomized. It was later determined that the bullets retrieved from Janelle and Donna matched the bullets from Sherry and Lisa. The very next day, a similar crime was committed in Wairika, California. A 21-year-old woman was kidnapped after she was buying cigarettes at a local liquor store. A man forced himself into her car, threatening her with a small silver gun. Though he demanded that she not look at him, she snuck peeks along the way, noticing that he wore a jacket, gloves, a cap, and he had tape over his nose. They drove for a while before he stole her money and made her lay across his lap and perform oral sex. A while later, he then forces her to take off her pants and underwear so that he could rape her. And then he was done. He drives her back to the parking lot, tapes her wrists, wipes down the seats with a towel, and disappears into the night. Five days later, the culprit targeted a fabric store in Corvallis. The night of February 9th, a man held a small silver gun to the female store clerk and her female customer. He then forces them to walk into the back room, binds their wrists, ankles with tape, as well as tape over their mouths. And he just fondles the women, masturbates on the clerk's face, and then leaves. And as he makes his way out of town onto the I-5, he stops at an Albany laundromat where he sodomizes two more women before going on about his day.
1: It's so interesting how there's just no M.O. It's not, I take, you know, he kidnaps these two girls, he rapes them and shoots them in the head. It's just like, you know, there's
0: no pattern. It's very much seems like sporadic and Mm -hmm, just convenient.
1: Opportunistic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Julie Wrights from Beaverton, Oregon, was 18 years old and had plans to visit several Valentine's Day parties the night of February 14th. But what was supposed to be a fun evening of chocolates, roses, and friends ended up being the last evening she would ever have. Early in the morning of the 15th, Julie would be raped and murdered by a gunshot wound to the head. Her mother, Candy, would come home to find her across the floor. Police were certain that Julie knew her killer. There on the scene were two glasses of wine and a pot of coffee that had just been prepared. On February 25th in Corvallis, Oregon, yet another attack on a female fast food worker occurred at Der Schnitzel. The man held up a chrome-plated pistol and forced the woman into a restroom in the back. He tied her up with tape and sexually assaulted her before fleeing the scene. The victim described the man as wearing jeans and a dark hat. He had dark hair and a beard. ...and a strap of adhesive tape across his nose. As you can tell, these crimes all happened within a very short period of time. In fact, it was about three months. The police worked very hard to try to find connections between them. I described so many crimes, but that wasn't all of them. There are far more. The witness descriptions allowed them to connect many of these crimes. They were even able to form a map... Detective Dave Kaminick from the Marion County Police, which is located in Salem, physically started adding pins to the map to help the other officers visualize how the serial rapist was finding victims. It was so obvious once it was up on the wall, a clear map of the I-5 corridor riddled with colored pins up and down the paper from Seattle, Washington, down to Redding, California. By late February, investigators had dozens of open cases, but finally they had their eyes on someone, a very suspicious man named Randall Woodfield. Randall Woodfield had gone to school with Cherie Ayers from grade school through their high school graduation. Randy, who also spent some time in prison after college, corresponded with Cherie through letters. This was one reason her family actually gave his name to police when they were asked to compile a list of people she knew. When Woodfield got out of prison, he saw Cherie as they attended their high school reunion. After her murder, they interviewed Randy and even asked him to take a polygraph test. While they found him to be evasive and deceptive, his semen didn't match the semen left on her body. If you recall, that was tested and determined to be an O-factor, but Randall had B-negative blood type. Now, this isn't a deal-breaker. What we know now is that O-factor can actually exist in both A and B types of blood. But back then, they didn't have that information. So while he seemed suspicious, they had nothing to hold him on. Could Randy have actually committed that murder? Did she maybe turn him down at the reunion? Then there was Darcy Fix and her boyfriend Douglas Altig. Randy knew Darcy. They knew each other in college because she dated his best friend from childhood. Darcy had left Woodfield's friend and moved on to Doug. Could it be that Randall was avenging the betrayal against his friend? Police would also discover that Randall Woodfield had known Julie Wrights, the latest murder victim. The two had met when she was only 17 years old and trying to get into a club where he worked as a bouncer using her fake ID. There had been talk that the two actually dated, but her mother was adamant that that was not the case. Julie actually lived with her mother, Candy, during that time period. That Valentine's Day, Randall had planned a party at the Marriott Hotel in downtown Portland, and he invited friends and acquaintances, one of which was Julie Wrights. Was he mad that she never showed up to the party? Did he want to teach her a lesson? These were the questions that detectives wanted to find answers to, so they started learning everything they could about Randy Woodfield. <music> Randall Brent Woodfield was born in Salem, Oregon, just after Christmas in 1950. Baby Randall was born with his signature dark curly locks that would stand out the majority of his life. His parents were happy to have a boy as they already had two girls and now their family was complete. After a short stay in both Salem and Corvallis, the Woodfields relocated and lived in a small, unincorporated community just off the Ocean Highway 101, a town called Otter Rock. This is a beautiful area that many of us Oregonians visit regularly to see one of our natural treasures, the Devil's Punch Bowl. Oh, I have been there. You've been there. We, we have. Went for a
1: ladies weekend.
0: Yeah, they have a wonderful hike right, right up on that cliff, and you can look down at the Devil's Punch Bowl. Randy's family life didn't seem outside of the norm. In fact, many reflect on them being a well-respected family in the area. They were upper middle class, and his mom stayed home while his father worked as an executive at the Pacific Northwest Bell, a phone company. As Otter Rock is a tiny community that takes just over five miles and sits only a few miles away from the slightly larger town of Newport, Randy actually attended school in Newport. His parents noted that he was good at school and excelled at sports. He played nearly every sport the town had to offer—track, basketball, baseball, and football. By the time he got to high school, he was known as the star of the football team. While Randy looked like an attractive, relatively popular, and sporty teen— There were people in the town that knew he had a little bit of a dark pastime. Randy was known to be a public exposer. He liked to flash his goods at all the ladies. He reveled in their shocked faces when he exposed his erect penis to them. Yet it was never taken seriously. Today, maybe it would be different. We know now that people who expose themselves to non-consenting strangers have an exhibitionist disorder, and that behavior will actually escalate. Males with this disorder are often at risk for alcohol abuse, antisocial personality disorder, and even pedophilia. Had they known this back then, perhaps someone could have stopped what some have theorized is one of the deadliest serial killers in American history. Waving around Randy Jr. didn't slow his progress into what life could offer someone with his supreme talent. Randy was nearly 6'2", fit, and had a real budding talent as a wide receiver. He wanted to play professional football. That was his dream. While he claimed that all the predominant football schools were scouting him and offering scholarships, he ended up starting his college career at Treasure Valley Community College. This is where he earned a long jump record and captained the football team. It was also there that his friends started to see a less appealing side of Randy. During his tenure at Treasure Valley, Randy dated one woman seriously. After some hiccups in their relationship, she broke it off with him, and he reacted very poorly. He broke into her house through a bathroom window, took back the things he bought her, and then trashed the house. This stunt resulted in his very first adult arrest. He was charged with vandalism, but got off in the trial because there was no physical evidence that could link him to it. Yet another red flag that I don't think can be blamed on the decade is that when Randy came home from college that summer in 1970, he started hanging out with an eighth grade girl. Now, the girl claims that nothing inappropriate ever happened and that he was more like an older brother, but I'm sorry, that behavior is not normal. This young girl would end up being one of Randy's best friends throughout his life. They would often talk on the phone. He would write to her and send pictures of himself and the women he dated. Randy didn't end up returning to Treasure Valley. He decided to transfer to Mount Hood Community College. Oh, our alma mater. (laughs) But he was only there for one term before he enrolled in Portland State University. He didn't want to give up on his dream, and though the school was really small and only played other football teams of other small Northwest universities, I guess universities, right? Yeah, like Lewis and Clark. Scouts would still go to those games, so he thought he could still keep this dream alive. The school also allowed him to participate in track while he was conducting spring football training. This isn't something that a lot of people are allowed to do at college, so that was another perk. Randy threw himself into Portland State. He majored in physical education and found himself a new member of the Christian community on campus as part of Portland State University Campus Crusade for Christ, as well as the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. As he embraced his newfound religious life, he limited his dating to Christian girls. People that knew him reflected this as being an obvious personality change, But I guess if I had to take a guess, I was thinking he was struggling with his desire to flash his wiener and thought maybe throwing himself into something that might improve who he is was something he wanted to do. Yeah, maybe he
1: felt that it was getting in his mind going other places that he he didn't want. Distract himself with what he
0: thinks is a good person or something a good person would do. Randy was arrested in August of 1972 at 22 years old. Yet again, he was caught exposing himself. While he was convicted of the indecent exposure crime, it was a suspended sentence, meaning he didn't do any time and there's no probation ever recorded. So it's unlikely that anyone in his life, including his school, his Christian crusaders, nobody knew what he had actually done. I'm not really sure what the point is of even bothering to convict someone if they get literally no punishment, but I'm not a
1: lawyer. I know this sounds like a stone thought. But isn't it interesting, that's just from the 70s. I mean, you know, humans have been around a while. And it's so interesting to me that we're just, we're still learning about human brains and behaviors. And to say that we know now, if someone is yeah. getting arrested for flashing, it probably means X, Y, Z. And that's just the tip of that iceberg, no pun intended. And all these years, you know, you have people getting arrested and just saying, oh, that that's just what he does. Yeah. And it's so recent that we've even Well, it's not until we
0: catch these people that we can document and record the kind of behavior and how it escalates. Exactly. And then be able to make those diagnoses earlier. But, yeah, it is interesting. Just our existence in general hasn't been that long. Whoa, deep thoughts. Other arrests followed. Barely a year later, he was arrested again for another indecent exposure. And this time he resisted arrest and tried to run away. He was originally sentenced to five months plus 25 days in jail, but he didn't serve that time and ended up with just a single year of probation. Then not even another year later, he was arrested again and received five years probation. Again, zero jail time. I think what we see here is a white, privileged, college-aged male getting away with this since he was never physically touching anyone. His crimes were likely deemed harmless, and paired with the fact that he was a rising star in athletics, no one cared to pursue it. This was, of course, lucky for Randy, who still wanted to achieve his dream of pro football. And the unachievable seemed to actually be within reach for someone who spent his college career playing for a community college and small universities, because the Green Bay Packers recruited him. Just two days before his February 1974 arrest, Randy signed a contract with the Green Bay Packers. He was going to come on board through the end of May, so just a couple of months, and basically you get $6,000, free room and board, and if you last, you could get signed on long-term and make more money. So he was invited for the trial period, given the six grand, and moved to Green Bay. There was also cash bonuses along the way. If you survive the initial cut, that's $2,500. If you catch 25 passes in a season, you get $2,000. If you catch 30 passes, you get $3,000. Not bad for a kid from the Oregon coast. There were, of course, caveats to the contract. You had to follow the rules. No booze, no drugs, no gambling, and you had to dress a specific way when you were in public places. So if you went to a hotel, the team had to dress up. They also had to request approval for any endorsement deals or articles written about them in magazines or papers. So I wonder what their thoughts were on flashing. Well, the dream didn't last long. Randy was cut from the team, but it was the highlight of his life. He would later reveal himself as the nostalgic type because he actually carried around his plane ticket to Green Bay for eight years, like somebody would with a portrait of their family Mm -hmm. in their wallet. He eventually moved back out west when he realized his dream was not going to be reborn. Now, there are a couple of rumors about why Randy was cut. Later in his life, he would attempt to sue writer Ann Rule. Now, that's because she wrote a book about him. And what really seemed to tick him off was that she described him as, quote, small hands, herpes, and a low IQ. The soup- all <laughs> I know. The suit was ultimately dismissed, and it's 100% likely that he still has all three. (laughs) But really, a more likely rumor was that he got caught exposing himself and that the team didn't want to take on the liability of someone like him. Neither the Packers or the police in Green Bay would offer any kind of comment on this. But when police ended up investigating him in the 80s, that information was on their radar. So it was a very believable rumor. At 24 years old and dismissed from the Packers, Randy shared an apartment in Portland with a high school friend who had a teaching job in the area. He spent his time split between a few different jobs, one of which was bartending. How interesting that Randy would return to Portland the very time the city was seeing a massive surge in attacks against women. Several women were attacked in Dunaway Park off of Southwest Barber Boulevard. The women attacked described to police that a man would sneak up behind them with a knife demand that they perform oral sex on him and take their purses. This was such a problem at the time that police decided the best way to combat the serial offender was to lure him in with a sting. A talented young policewoman named Annette Jolin ended up volunteering for this mission. Her job was to stroll up and down the pathways, hoping that she would tempt a lurking man from wherever he hid. In her possession were eight marked bills intended to be traceable should an attack and robbery ensue. A short distance away, officers would be waiting for a signal so that they could, you know, save her and arrest the culprit. In the middle of the day, Officer Jolyn heard footsteps behind her and soon a knife was pressed against her neck. She offered the money to the assailant who took it and left only after fondling her chest. And then he was gone. Finally, she was able to give her signal. Woodfield emerged from the park to meet police standing in wait. In his pockets were the marked bills taken from the undercover officer. He was arrested for robbery with a knife, but police also found a gun on him. While he had charges for oral sodomy from the previous victims, they were ultimately dropped and he went to prison pleading guilty for the second-degree robbery charge. He was sentenced to 10 years in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Randall Woodfield was not a model prisoner. He didn't follow the rules, and he would get written up for all of his infractions. He was even noted as having an overall bad attitude. He often complained to anyone that would listen that it wasn't appropriate to have female guards who could watch him shower and female therapists who wanted to hear the sordid details of his sexual fantasies. He refused to share, and he would be written up for it. Eventually, he did get used to life in prison— He got a job in the kitchen making $2.50 a week, and he took college classes. Most of these classes were straightforward—computer, accounting, economics—but he did sneak in a class on human sexuality.
1: Of course he did.
0: He played sports and bragged to his roommates about the time he played for the Packers. Woodfield, who had always been a bit of a letter writer, really honed his skills when he was in prison— he sent letters to his former eighth-grade friend that he palled around with, and he tried to get her to help him with his money-making idea. He wanted to make things in prison and have her sell them. He sent her pictures and talked about his old life and his new life. Now, an interesting thing about Randy is that he was obsessed with his physical appearance. And as way of inmates go, I mean, he was working with a pretty hot bod, and he knew it. He sent nude photos to all of the women he wrote letters to. He spent much of his prison time trying to convince his therapist that he was changed and that he recognized that what he had been doing was wrong. While many of the psychologists he spun this tale to disagreed with him and actually recognized that he was probably faking it, he eventually did find a correction psychologist that bought it. And I certainly hope that wasn't my uncle who worked there at that time. That would be really disappointing. Is he still with us that we could ask? He he wouldn't be allowed to tell us, but I often try to get information out of him, but he won't. Yeah.
1: Darn. Can you imagine?
0: We could interview him. Randall Woodfield was paroled after four years of his incarceration, just in time for his 10-year high school reunion. For Randy, the time out of prison was meant for doing all of the things he couldn't do before— He started working for a company called Tektronix, which paid him very well. He lived with his sister and was saving his money to get his life together. But not long into his freedom, he abandoned the day job so he could bartend and live a party lifestyle. He dated dozens of women, and at least one person in his life referred to him as having over 200 women's numbers in his little black book, his treasured possession that he used to fuel his fixation with calling the ladies in his life. During this time of the newfound freedom where he wasn't stuck in a building with hundreds of other men, he really took advantage of the perks. He confided in his best girlfriend, you know, the eighth grader he met years back, that he had screwed up and contracted herpes from one of the many women he had sexual relationships with. So as you can imagine, he was spreading it to a lot of women. He also continued his pastime of sending nudes via letters to all of his ladies And can you imagine if he had Snapchat back then? Oh, yeah, it'd be a mess. Boy. Randy was so pleased with his appearance that he even sent pictures to Playgirl, who I'm pretty sure published a photo of him. And it might even be the boys next door. I don't What do you call it? An episode? What is it? (laughs) Uh,
1: What is it? (laughs) Issue. (laughs)
0: Issue. Little did Randy know that his fixation on women, the women he wanted desperately to love him and fear him and respect him, would ultimately be his downfall. So I'm sure those of you who didn't know this case before are already figuring it out. But just why is it that police were so fixated on Randall Woodfield? Well, there's the connection to the murder of Cherie Ayers, Darcy Fix, and Julie Wrights. I mean, how many people know three people who have been murdered on different occasions? That's what we call a red flag. And there's also what was left behind. One of the very sad aspects of this case was that the victims of the I-5 bandit who survived would always be tied to the man that tried to terrify and control them. I'm speaking about the herpes that many of his victims contracted but this was a clue that would help prosecution and police tie Randall Woodfield to all of the cases. He had told his young female friend himself that he had contracted the disease when he got out of
1: prison, and she could
0: testify to that.
1: How interesting, too, that it was the victims that he killed were who he knew, and then the victims that he didn't kill he didn't know. I mean, obviously it makes sense because they could point out who he was but then i don't know that's interesting i feel like he's
0: almost different people he has these different motives for different Mm -hmm. crimes and he just it just all comes out of him like Mm -hmm. very sporadic and and amped up you know i wonder if they ever tested him for steroid he's steroids right yeah yeah because he was a bodybuilder randall rented a room for 150 dollars a month from a single mother named miss mats she described him as an overall good tenant He was quiet, he played with her son, and he paid his rent on time. Despite a few instances where she caught him in bed with the babysitter, yeah, great tenant, (laughs) she had no real issue with him. She didn't ask questions about where his money came from either because she knew perfectly well he didn't have stable work. Police went to their home several times to ask Woodfield questions, once even getting his permission to search the premises, At the time, they found nothing really pertaining to the case. They did find a gun cleaning kit, but there was no gun. So he made up some excuse that it was a gift. There wasn't even a sign of athletic tape, which led the detectives to assume he had disposed of evidence. So why I say that is in another case when he was being interviewed for one of the women he knew that passed away, or that was murdered, excuse me, the the detective wasn't treating him like a suspect. It was more like just feeling him out. And when he was in his house, he saw a bunch of athletic tape on the counter. So when detectives went there when he was the suspect, they expected to find it. So that was super fishy to them that suddenly this athletic guy had no athletic tape. Yeah. When police had gone to his home on an occasion Woodfield wasn't there, Miss Matz gave them information that would be considered a very important part of placing him at the crime scenes. Mrs. Matz had gone into great detail about how Randall was this wonderful tenant who paid his bills despite the obvious fact that he had no paying job.
1: And slept with the babysitter. Yeah.
0: She even made reference to his fondness of long distance phone calls. Now, this perked the investigators' interests. So they had her dish all the dirt. Apparently, Woodfield had a fiancé living out of state. He phoned her frequently, not just from the house, but from all over. Now, kids, back in the old days, if you had a landline, apparently you could charge long-distance calls to your phone line from wherever you were. So you might be in a phone booth 3,000 miles away, but you can actually charge it to your home phone bill. I didn't know that.
1: I didn't know that either. I had and calling I lived cards in this
0: era. Yeah, we had calling cards yeah, in the 9800
1: uh, collect or whatever.
0: So apparently you could do the same thing if you had your own phone line. Interesting.
1: Learn something new every day.
0: So as police were very interested in learning Woodfield's whereabouts for all of the dates of the crimes, they asked if she would be willing to give them the phone bill and she did. It wasn't long until detectives learned that Randall Woodfield was quite the gentleman caller. He had made phone calls to not just his fiance, but to many, many women, some of which assumed he was their boyfriend. They had no idea he was engaged to another woman. This was their loving boyfriend who never forgot to phone them and tell them how much he missed them. And some of these calls were back to back on the same day. Over the course of just a few months, he had made thousands of calls. Detectives decided to map out these calls, and what slowly surfaced was a map that looked very similar to the I-5 bandits' crimes. Not only that, the timestamps matched up. It was like every time a crime was committed, just a few hundred feet away, a phone call was made to a girl.
1: There you go. There you have it. Solved. (laughs)
0: Randall Woodfield had left his calling card along the I-5 corridor, not only with his crimes and his herpes, but also with his beloved phone calls to all of his ladies.
1: I really do love when a bad guy thinks they're, they've are they figured something out that makes them extra elusive and look how I'm just so clever and I'm going to use this number and that way I can say, look, I was just calling my girlfriend's. And they thinking that they can't just piece that together, like doy.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because doing what hunting along the I five is a very smart thing to do because you can easily get out of many of those towns and cities. But if you're gonna stop and call
1: someone, like you're, maybe do do it right where you just committed a horrific crime.
0: I wonder if he thought by using. The charge to his home phone line that maybe they wouldn't register That's his actual saying, location. Yeah. That, that he thought he was yeah. being clever to you say. probably should do a little bit of research before you start your crime spree is what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah. Or don't do it.
0: Woodfield had allowed police to search his home once when he was being questioned in the case. But after it became very obvious that he was the sole suspect in what was turning out to be a very serious case, he stopped being so accommodating and police had to get a search warrant to search all of his property. Their search warrant was approved or granted or whatever you call it, uh, but it was specific to pertinent things in the case. So I'm guessing things like athletic tape because the witnesses noted it being across their nose and some was found on them from being taped up. Also a 32 caliber gun and any relevant bullets, and perhaps maybe something actually connecting him to the victims. Police got majorly lucky. They found his racquetball bag and tucked away inside one of the pockets was a casing of a 32 caliber bullet and a roll of athletic tape that matched tape found on the victims. Sounds like a kill kit to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Police had plenty of evidence now. They were positive they had the I-5 bandit. But what was really going to be the icing on their cake was the positive ID by a witness. And the shining star for the prosecution would be Lisa Garcia, the victim who survived rape and attempted murder. Her memory recall was shockingly good for someone who had been shot twice in the head. So they wanted to get the suspect in front of her. It took some convincing, but they brought her in on March 5, 1981, and they had Woodfield line up in what would now be known as an infamous lineup picture. Little did Lisa know that side by side to the man who killed her best friend and tried to kill her were officers from the police department. But without flinching or hesitation, and in little more than a handful of minutes, Lisa Garcia wrote down number five: Good old Randall Brent Woodfield. Two days later, on March 7th, Woodfield was officially taken into custody after yet another witness positively identified him in a photo lineup of robbery suspects. About a week later, he was indicted on rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, illegal possession of firearms, and the murder of Sherry Hull. The summer of 1981 would be the summer Lisa Garcia and the many, many other surviving victims of the I-5 killer would be able to sleep a little more easily. He wasn't yet put away, but prosecution assured the victims that the case was strong. Woodfield and his lawyers tried everything they could to come out unscathed. He pointed the finger at a known mass shooter from Salem. They attempted to get the star witness, Lisa Garcia, blocked from the case, claiming that police had put her under hypnosis. Now, This was true. Lisa had been put under hypnosis by a police department member who had experience in hypnosis. They wanted to try to pull as much detail about the night of the attack from her memory. They weren't able to gauge much more than what they already knew, but doing hypnosis for a case going to trial does carry some significant risk. The judge considered this, but ultimately let the witness stay after he deemed the audio recordings of the hypnosis showed no police wrongdoing. It was by the book, so to speak. Now, this wouldn't fly today, obviously, but a lot of cases in the 80s and even into the 90s had hypnosis. Yeah, we've
1: talked about some of them.
0: It took over three hours of deliberation, but Randall Woodfield was convicted on all counts and was given life in prison plus 90 years. This wasn't his only trial. A few months later, a second trial in Benton County would take place. This trial was for sodomy and weapons charges on the attack that took place in a restaurant bathroom. He was found guilty and given an additional 30 years to his already very long sentence. A third trial took place in Lynn County, and he was given two more sodomy charges. All in all, Randall Woodfield was sentenced to life in prison plus 165 years. In the late 90s and early 2000s, great improvements were made to DNA technology, and that offered the opportunity to run tests for unsolved cases. Oregon State Police Crime Lab Director Beth Carpenter decided to revisit the swabs from Cherie Ayer's murder from 1980. Earlier, swabs were tested for blood type, but now that the advancements had been made, they could test for DNA. Something important to note is that in 1999, a legislation passed making it required for some convicted defendants to submit a blood or buccal sample along with their fingerprints. A buckle sample, if you are not aware, is a cheek swab. So they'll grab the cells from your cheek to do DNA testing. These are typically for convictions of violent crime, sexual in nature, or murder. So that meant that Mr. Woodfield's blood joined the database in December of 2000. That legislation has helped solve many cases. And when Cherie's blood was submitted sometime in 2000, by 2001, a match was made. Though Woodfield was definitely suspected of this murder early on, it wasn't until this match had positively linked him to the murder and sexual assault thanks to the swab of vaginal fluid taken at the crime scene that they were able to finally have a positive match. In 2012, four more murders were positively connected to Woodfield thanks to the progress with DNA. The open cases of Darcy Fix, Doug Altig, Donna Eckert, and Janelle Jarvis could finally be closed. California opted not to proceed with prosecuting him for the murder of Donna Eckert and her daughter Janelle. The reason was pretty simple. He was already going to be locked up for his entire life, and it would cost California up to $3 million in six months' time to take him to trial.
1: That would be so hard to be their family, because you understand. It's like, that makes sense. He's already caught. It's obviously him. But to not get to have kind of that stamp yeah. of justice on well, there. And they to, talk to, to say... families.
0: I, I think one nice thing is that there isn't, there isn't a statute of limitations for murder. Right. Now, even though he's been positively connected to these additional murders, prosecutors in Multnomah County have decided also that they weren't going to file charges. Both the Ayers and the Wrights families agreed with them and decided that they weren't going to do it unless for some reason he was up for parole. Because... He can. He is eligible to apply for parole. Randall Woodfield was officially connected to seven murders, but he's suspected of 25 to 44 other murders and 140 other crimes of robbery, rape, and sodomy. What makes him very unique in comparison to other killers is that he did not have a cooling-off period. Those of you who are deep into serial killer knowledge likely know that cooling off periods tend to be a common trait. They kill, they break, they kill, and while their length of cycles vary, there seems to be this brief period after they kill that they feel like they can live normally for a while. That is until the mood strikes again. Well, Randall didn't have that. It's thought by detectives and psychologists that he never did. If he had not been caught, he would have been the most prolific killer. And who knows? Maybe he is because this guy has not admitted to anything. He has never once indicated that any of these crimes were committed by him.
1: So he argued all of them. They all, the, the ones that went to trial went because he wouldn't take any kind of plea.
0: Nope. He basically, the only thing he's ever admitted to was flashing. So they have huh. no idea. And there's so and many so unsolved too, crimes,
1: especially these types of crimes. It's normally, you know, kind of a bragging point for these guys where. It's, yeah, he's not like that. And
0: it's he, it's like he wants to be remembered for playing for the Packers and being in a nudie mag. Randall Woodfield resides in the Salem Penitentiary and continues to correspond and call women to this day. In fact, He's had three wives while he was in prison and I have no idea how many engagements because it happens that frequently. Even Ann Rule spoke to the media about how she pitied the naive women that would be lured in by him. But to be fair, it wasn't just naive women. Randall lured a big fish. At one point he was besties with the notorious Diane Downs who lived in her own prison, just down the street. They wrote each other letters and had a secret engagement but she spilled the beans to the media. So he claimed it was all untrue and in her head and made her basically publicly apologize for misunderstanding.
1: What a nightmare duo that is. Yeah, I'm
0: like, I, it blows my mind, but I cannot help but see it as like poetic. She continued her legacy of wanting unattainable men, he continued his legacy yep. of leading women on yep. a match made in hell. All right, I have trivia for you. Do you have any questions before we dive into this? Three
1: things I would like to say. One, I really appreciate that um, his level of disguise was the same as <laughs> Nelly, and he just went with like, I'm gonna put tape on my nose. The question
0: is, did Nelly steal that, or did he just not know about him?
1: I'm gonna go with he didn't know. Well, actually, he
0: learned that trick from someone in prison in his first stint. So when he went to prison for the um, when he got caught in the park, he had a roommate, roommate, cellmate, (laughs) roommate, like they choose to be there. That said, you you know, if you're going to disguise your face, you got to hide your nose because that's what makes you easily recognizable. So that's where it came from.
1: Wow. Simplest answer is the simplest answer. Yeah. But
0: I love the fake fucking beard. Like that shit is funny. And that comes in in a few cases. I of just fake mustaches and beards.
1: Also, it's, you know, we've. Mentioned several times and people have asked us, you know, aren't you worried about running out of cases and running out of things to talk about? Or on the flip side of that, why the Pacific Northwest? Why are there so many murders? And it's the five. Oh, I mean, yeah. You can get this, away fast. The serial killer epidemic really started once the five came in in the, you know, mid century. And yeah, you could get in from a single day. You can get in Canada a totally different to place. Mexico. Yeah, it's insane. So. There's that answer. And three, it's interesting not to lean it that way because I'm – you know how I feel about it anyway. But he is a very good-looking man. It's funny that he's not mentioned a lot. You know, it's always Ted Bundy was yes. so good-looking, which I hate. And I'm like, we're done with that. But it's it's funny. I don't know his name. I've right. not heard him so, and I've watched all And let all me say films. this.
0: I, you know, there are a number of sources where people are always saying, I can't believe he's not more well-known. Because what happened was there was Ted Bundy. He came the decade after. But he had so much in common with him. Actually, you know, I don't normally watch the the fictional kind of oh, uh-huh. movies Made based on these or whatever, but I
1: did. Yeah, there was a Lifetime one Yeah, right? and based it, off the book.
0: And it's really good. It's called The Hunt for the I-5 Killer. And it's, I mean, it's really good, but they had some major inconsistencies. But I think it was purposeful to separate him from Ted Bundy because they drove the same kind of car. They both had a very similar color Volkswagen Beetle. They both stocked the I-5. And were known for jumping state to state. They had similar um, victim types. Well, and then also there's Green River Killer. Right. So there is some overlap there. Actually, um, I wrote down there is a case, Martha Morrison. So she was 17 years old and she disappeared from Eugene in 1974. And they found her body in Vancouver. Both Randall Woodfield and Ted Bundy have been suspected of this crime. They haven't determined who has done it. But, but she's a similar victim type on the I-5. like It's very interesting that there is possibly overlap. Wow! Um, and then there's a, another unsolved case. I think they were leaving Spokane, Washington. Yeah, they were going from Spokane to their hometown of Fairbanks, Alaska. Two women, 19 years old and 18 years old, Kathy Allen and Marsha Weeder And they were hitchhiking and their bodies were discovered and Multiple killers have been suspected of this. Woodfield, Lee, Martin Lee Sanders, possibly Ted Bundy. It's it's all very interesting to me that there's so much overlap mm-hmm. that we probably will never know unless there's DNA left.
1: You I'm going to write him. Just don't end up married to him. Oh, my God. <laughs> I may have low standards. I don't have non-existent standards. All
0: right. I have one more piece of trivia from this that I think you'll appreciate. Okay. The DA who prosecuted Randall in the first trial in Marion County. He went after him. He's actually the son of a very famous actor you might know of, Dick Van Dyke. It's his son, Chris Van Dyke. He moved out here to pursue a legal career.
1: Really? Yeah, isn't
0: that interesting? And he was a
1: DA? He
0: was the DA. He went balls to the wall on this case.
1: Wow. So if you
0: read the book, The I-5 Killer by Ann Rule, which I always recommend Ann Rule books for the detail you know sadly she could never get to the what happened after mm-hmm. but uh she has so much info on chris van dyke on dave Kaminick, the star detective of the case it's really good and the the movie while a lot of it is wrong they do have a good job of of tackling the main things in the book so go read it if you I also like this really case. enjoy that
1: you said recommend did i say recommend and rule books Re- i recommend this book yeah i
0: do it's just a little different <laughs> So he's still alive. He's still alive. He's 69,
1: baby. hey We would like to say thank you to Laura Kay from Gresham, Oregon. Should I do one no. like that? No, no, They no, wouldn't like no. that? No, no, no. No murder in the rain would like to give a huge shout out and thank you to our newest patreon supporters laura k from right in our own backyard in gresham oregon laura a from tallahassee florida rachel s in centralia washington and jess s from yarumba queensland i don't know how to say it and i couldn't find anything about it so i figured i'd put some sass nice ass on it hi guys
0: welcome <laughs> Oh, I didn't want to, though. Well, then you should just go.
1: (laughs) Josh can go, hi, I'm Alicia. (laughs) Yeah, do your best Alicia impersonation.
0: Hi, I'm Alicia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's not much different different than our boy voice.
0: That's true. I'm a boy. I'm a boy. I'm Alicia. (laughs) How do you like it?
1: Let's just try it. Once in the butt
0: won't kill anyone. Oh, what? You know, like if oh, if a sheep or a goat or a cow was fucked, they had by to be dude. killed because you couldn't eat them. Who's gonna eat it?
1: I would. I'm not gonna eat that part.
0: <laughs> well, that's like so, the, that's like so the part tender. I'm like the least
1: interested in. <laughs> I had an old but coworker who like she, um, she would eat chicken buttholes for lunch. Who? Should right. we put his picture up on the wall? No, no, no. I don't little need mural. To look at that. Mm-mm. Like, if ha- I, I lived I closer, care. I would have like, come yeah. over and then just, like, Guys, gone home. Guys, I don't home. care.
0: Okay, well. Oh, I felt like we were more just talking to each, to our, to yeah. each other and not you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we're not allowed to. Yeah. We, no, I've been playing with it for a while. You gotta get trying. some new headphones. <laughs> no, I like I'm, these headphones. I know that you do, <laughs> but you need to get some other different headphones. I, I won't. I'll just do this. It's fine. <laughs> I'm <blowing> so, <laughs> <laughs> I won't. So, don't. I won't. A gold Volkswagen Beetle. This is for you, bitch. <laughs> Dean Koontz. Meaning they have blood type antigens in the semen that could be blood typed. Blood, no. Blood antigens. Blood type antigens in
1: the semen, period. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> yeah, so you better be nicer to Josh so he doesn't ruin your life. Ruins his life too. What are you talking about? I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Umph yeah. Missing. It was missing. <laughs> it was
1: gone. Leave the hungy-tungy. Hungy-tungy. <laughs> this is
0: my screenplay. <laughs> I really want to see what you guys think. It's like suddenly just a weird word comes out. It's like I'll be talking normally and then I just like. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw someone muddling a drink with a dildo on TikTok. That's...
1: <laughs> it was
0: hilarious. That's pretty great.
1: Oh, you know what? I have a book of words. I, it's probably oh, in there. Is it a dictionary? Me too. <clears throat> Every book I own. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to see one of our natural treasures, the Oregon, no, the Oregon Sponge Bowl. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs>
1: this is a beautiful. <laughs> <sighs> but when he got oh, my God. But instead, he was just uh, that guy. You know yeah. to everyone. It's like oh right. Oh gosh, look at that. Star out. He's football pull player, have out. you seen
0: his wiener? There are more words I've repeated. Uh, like the and, and I <laughs> Randy <No>. Shh won't <laughs> <laughs> You're so close. I know. That's why I'm like tongue-tied. The entire time, that's why. <laughs> Literally from sentence two. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love when you're funny. I love hawks. They're my favorite bird. Yeah. Prey. I'm afraid one's going to eat my dog. Fair. Bye. Yeah, it will happen. I mean, it would. Not will. Not will. Not will. It's possible. It's possible that because they you don't leave they them, them do. unattended, you know? Shit. If that happens, oh, God. No. you are I did in not say so it. much trouble. What is it? Fur burger, not Fur fuzzy burger. burrito. <laughs> Disgusting. You made it gross.
1: Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough, written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at KYFIFER.com.